You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. This morning we're going to continue our study of the prophet Haggai. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Haggai. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 19 this morning. But you could also bookmark Ezra, once again, Ezra, who wrote the history of this period of time. We're going to be going back and spending a little bit of time in Ezra. But before we do, let's commit our time to our Lord. Oh, are these for me? Bunch of presents up here. You shouldn't have. You didn't. Let's commit our time to our Lord and ask his blessing on our time. Our Father, we do thank you once again that we are able to gather and fellowship in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that uh, it is by your grace that we are able to do this. Thank you that we can open your word and be taught by your spirit this morning. So we just ask your blessing. Help us all to understand your word more clearly Help us to be more obedient to what we learn, and then help us to praise you for all that you're doing in our lives. And we just thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, last time, just a real quick review, we we looked at God's promise of future glory, and that was chapter 2 of the first nine verses. And we saw that uh, he had them remember past glory, or actually some of them are remembering the past glory as the old people. And as the old King James said, the ancient ones. I was going to make a direct application of that last time, but we don't have any ancient people here, okay? Just thought I'd let you know. And whether or not we have any old people, it doesn't say how old you have to be to be an old person. So uh, personally, I'm going to make a rather liberal application of that. But uh, there there were people that were obviously upset that the this new temple was not quite as great as the old temple. Enough of an issue for God to use... Haggai to to bring it up and remind them, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory, he asked. How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes, he said. And I was, you know, in looking at that, we went back and looked at Ezra. I'm kind of wondering, were they thinking that maybe they deserved a bigger temple? Possibly. Well, then we saw that he reminded them of their present glory, what they have to do now, and he exhorts them to be strong three times. Be strong. They have a, they have the promise of God that He is with them no matter what they're doing. And then He moves to revealing the future glory. There's also going to be a future judgment. And we saw this cataclysmic event, uh, not a local earthquake, but a, a uh, cosmic earthquake of giant proportions that's going to take place. And then the future glory will be greater and then the future peace will be greater. So, were there any questions or comments you might have had about what we saw last time? Any ancient people got offended? Okay, good. Well, how about some questions from verse uh, chapter page 8, questions to consider. How did the older, the ancient returnees possibly discourage or contribute to the discouraging of the rebuilding effort? Any thoughts on that? We know that they were discouraged by the the people group that was there by the existing indigenous people, um, also in there. But 
Okay, so the same audience is exhorted now to be strong, and he says it three times, says it to each individual and the whole group of people. They are reminded of the Mosaic covenant, which obligated them to obedience, but also promised God's protection and presence, the presence of God. It's okay. That's why we're doing what we're doing. Okay, number two. Since none of you ancient people want to talk about that first one. Doing God's work, God's way, means working in total dependence on his... Okay? we got to depend on God's what? Spirit. Spirit, okay. Or you could put strength, spirit. Uh, his spirit is represented in his presence, which he provides by his continual presence, which he had promised in the Mosaic Covenant. I am with you, he says. What a promise. If you're tasked by God with doing something, no matter what it is, good to know you have his presence. I should remind you of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. All authority is given unto me, right? And then what? Make disciples. And then that final part of that is, and I am with you always. So number three, at Mount Sinai, Yahweh shook the mountain and the surrounding region In the future, he promises to shake everything. Yeah, cataclysmic and multiple references there. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth. In other words, all everything, the nations as well. And then number four, between verses six through nine, Yahweh says, I will, four times. Do you think he will actually accomplish what he says he will do? Vote for one. It's an election. So, you know. Kind of was getting in the spirit, maybe. Okay, no, maybe, I don't know, or an emphatic yes. Okay, and I'm not trying to influence your vote here. That's you can't do that. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to tamper with uh, ballots or influence votes. Just thought I'd let you know. Except this is my ballot, and I can do what I want with it. Okay, just saying. Number five, the promise of the latter glory being greater and peace in this place. That place being Jerusalem where the temple was. That has not happened yet. These will be features of the millennial kingdom Jesus Christ will establish at his second coming. Multiple references there. This is not a thin doctrine in Scripture. It is absolute promise of the coming kingdom, and this is cover to cover in throughout Scripture. We have then a reference to um, Peter's preaching. He's preaching to the Jews down at the bottom of the page there. Acts chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. And he says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, in other words, this is nothing new. This is, this is God's plan, God's word from the very beginning, that his Christ would suffer. He thus fulfilled, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing, that's a technical term, meaning the restoration of God's creation. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Bracketing this statement is a reference to the prophets, the prophets. And that that phrase, restoring of all things, that again, every, the Jews would have understood what he meant by that. This is God's restoring the fallen 
earth and the restoration of it. That will happen when Christ comes back. And that will be part of his kingdom. The, the earth will bloom and blossom and it'll be restored. Creation will be restored. This is the same root word that is found in Acts 1.6 when the disciples, after being with Jesus for 40 days after he was raised from the dead, and he gave them a 40-day clinic on the kingdom, it says, the kingdom. They had one question. That question was what? When? They didn't ask anything else about it. Why? He'd already answered those questions. They had a 40-day clinic about the kingdom. And their one question and they use the same uh, the same root word as user. Is it at this time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? There was a high messianic expectation in those people. And you see that all through the New Testament. They were expecting the coming Messiah in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. They believed what God said. Simple. They just believed what he said. And so there was a high messianic expectation. And um, when this happens... And I think this passage is one of the key passages for understanding. The nation will be saved, then Christ will come back. The exegetical look at this would tell you that this is what he's calling them to do. Be saved so that Christ can return, and he will. And when he comes back, he's going to come back to a saved nation of believing Jewish people. Okay, any other thoughts you might have or questions about what we saw last time? Well, we're into week three. This is going to be um, page 9, and we're looking at verses 10 through 14. This is the third oracle, as it's called, or message by Haggai. And it starts out in verse 10, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Now, once again, we have that, we've seen it over and over again, this time stamp, right? Um, mentioned it before, I think, that Haggai is called the most chronologically sensitive of the prophets, and he is. He's so specific, getting down to the days. And here we have 24th day of the ninth month, second year of Darius. It, all of these oracles or, or messages of Haggai took place within about a four-month period in the same year, the second year of Darius. And one of the things we need to notice is Chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, and then this one starts on 24th day of the ninth month. But if you turn one page ahead to Zechariah, Zechariah returned somewhat after uh, Haggai did, but his ministry is going to overlap with Haggai's ministry. So you see the verse 1 of chapter 1, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. So if you uh, like to scribble in your Bible, you could put between verse 9 and verse 10, Zechariah begins here. So we're talking a lot about dates and times in our study. Um, that shows you there's some overlap there because Zechariah clearly tells us he's beginning in the eighth month. So we have 7, 8, and then 9, starting in verse 10 right there. So Zechariah begins here. And what does this oracle talk about? Well, ultimately, it's going to talk about a future blessing. That's way at the end. So, um, But what he has to deal with first is problem. And you're gonna, you've, you've noticed this sort of a cycle, right? There's a problem, and God deals with that, and then talks about the solution, talks about what it's doing to their lives, but then he gives a promise, a future blessing. And, and we're just sort of cycle back and forth or around through the same sort of a sequence. 
So the first thing he's going to do is deal with this problem of unclean worship. And the way he does it is to simply ask two questions. What he's really doing here, he's taking them back to basics, back to the basics of the law. And the law early on, I mean, this is even all the way back to Mount Sinai. I think we talked about that last time. Basics, basics. There's God, and he's holy. He's up on the mountain. And you are down here. We're not holy. And there's separation or distance between God and people. He's holy. We're not. And he even put the barrier around the mountain. You can't come up to me. You can't approach God on your own basis. If you're going to approach God, you have to approach God his way. And, of course, God made the way through that sacrifice that was made. And at that particular covenant on Mount Sinai was a um, a bilateral covenant. The blood, some blood poured on the altar representing God's part. Other blood was spattered on the people. They were obligated to obey the Mosaic covenant. And so what we have here is a, is a uh, return back to the very basic question of holiness. And it says in verse 11, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law, because the priests would have been the ones who would have interpreted the law, and the people would have asked them questions about the law, and so on. Here's question number one. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. In other words, basic question, can holiness be transferred or communicated merely by contact or touch? And even here, it's, it's in the fold of the, the garment, so it's not really even direct contact. But the, but the basic principle is, can holiness be transferred? The answer is no in verse 12. And then the second question he asks, Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, in other words, any of this food, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So the second question, is defilement transferable? The answer is yes. And the difference in the answers there, one, one said no, and the other one, there is no word in Hebrew, the biblical Hebrew for the word yes, so they just answer with a positive statement. It does become unclean. So here we have back to basics, this basic attempt by God to say, here's the fundamental issue here, holiness or unholiness. And holiness can not be transferred, but defilement can. And then he makes application of it in verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. What's going on here? Why why is he bringing them back to this basic fundamental issue and back to what what was wrong with what was in their lives. They had gone back to work. We know that from chapter 1. They had begun to rework work on the temple again, and yet, as we're going to see, they're still suffering the chastening of God. Well, let's go back to Ezra, since Ezra wrote the, the history of this. 
We looked last time at the event concerning the old people complaining about the uh, the temple not being what it used to be. But prior to that, in Ezra chapter 3, we have the account of right when they came back, right when they came back to Jerusalem to begin to build the temple. And remember, they were sent back in order to build the temple. Even Cyrus the Great, who had issued the decree to let them go back, understood that. This is the purpose you're going back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, and even financed by the Persian Empire. So they really had no excuses. But in chapter 3, verse 1 of Ezra, here's the history of when they just when they came back. Look what they started to do. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Big, massive gathering of people. This would have been thousands and thousands of people back into Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, that's Joshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built, not the temple, they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place. Now, here's a real Here's a real tell. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. Their motivation is not obedience to God. If it would have been, they would have been busily building the temple, right? But for fear of the people in the land, they got busy being religious, okay? Back to the law, back to the requirements of the Levitical law and all of these offerings. So they built the offer, the altar, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, Burnt offerings, morning and evening. Verse 4, And they kept the feasts of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. They weren't missing anything. They were getting it all down. They were checking every box. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. Offering, offering, offering. They were getting really busy, really religious, right? Then verse 6. Verse 6, once again, there's a time stamp that sort of is a bracket that closes this off. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the very next statement, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they started to do that. They gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So they had a priority that was not God's priority. And you could say, well, okay, well, what's wrong with going back to the Levitical law and doing the offerings that it said to do there? What's wrong with that? Wouldn't you call that good works? Sure, right? Yeah, I, and well, and they did not, they weren't doing what God told them to do. You parents can probably come up with some illustrations concerning your kids, right? Billy, clean your bedroom. And Billy is doing some other stuff, maybe good stuff, right? But Billy, you're not cleaning your bedroom, right? Yeah. Uh, the question, the, the uh, Cornell's comment is, I can come to God on my terms. We're back to Mount Sinai. They thought they could approach God on their terms. And God put barriers. No, you can't. 
I'm the one that's going to create a way for you to come to me. Apart from that, you can't come to me. Well, let's go back to Haggai. Now that we see the background of this, this indictment, he's taken them right back to basics, right back to uh, spiritual life. I'll say 101, but what's the 1.0? Is that the better, more contemporary? Okay, back to basics. And then he says, so, so that's the problem, unclean worship. They get, they understood this, that holiness is, is not transferable, but defilement is. And what is defiled? Every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. If you want a kind of a good working definition of paganism, okay, religion without revelation. When I say revelation, I mean the word of God. Religion without revelation. External religious ritual. And it could be lots of stuff. I mean, it could be good stuff, you know? Everything, and why? Of course it's going to be good stuff, because you're using it as a substitute for, for internal spiritual reality. External religious ritual as opposed to internal spiritual reality. And that external stuff could be, probably is, really good stuff. And, I mean, you can think of movements and groups who, who emphasize that. Well, we feed 10,000 people a week through our church, we got rid of the pulpit and all that. I mean, we're turning this into a food bank. Isn't that a good thing? I mean, and you can go down the list. You can find all kinds of things that are good, but when you use them that way, you're displacing the best. You're displacing the Word of God and the place it is supposed to have in the body of Christ and in the church. This is what they were doing. External religious ritual is no substitute for internal spiritual reality. Think of Nicodemus, John chapter 3. This guy could check all the boxes, right? Right down the line. Jewish, a Pharisee. Jesus referred to him as the teacher. The article is the teacher of Israel. Now, he may have been the preeminent teacher of his day, but he was at least a very prominent teacher, and yet he didn't know the basics about being born again. And the Lord rebuked him. You're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? Well, he's a Pharisee. He's an expert in the Old Testament. He could have understood it from many places, right? Uh, Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. He could have understood it from Ezekiel. He could have understood it from many places. Paul even told Timothy, because Timothy, uh, he said, you grew up, you had the sacred scriptures. He would have had the Old Testament. He's not talking about the New Testament there. Able to make you wise unto salvation. You can get saved from reading the Old Testament. I want to get off down a rabbit trail, but what do we have nowadays? We have a lot of people running around saying, well, we just need to just focus on the New Testament. Uh, the famous, well-known Andy Stanley says, we should decouple ourselves from the Old Testament. He didn't get that from God. Okay? Well, the problem was unclean worship. The people then are called, once again, to consider or to think carefully. In verse 15, it says, now then... Consider from this day, and there's a very interesting um, textual issue here. Uh, some commentators have said that um, all of the interpretive issues of Haggai are between verses 15 and 19, and they are. And a very interesting one is right here. The word onward there, and uh, in the ESV here, there's a little footnote that takes you down to the bottom, and it says, or backward. Now, usually when there's a little footnote concerning a word and you're looking at 
the semantic range or the, the, the range of meaning, you know, you're going to have, they want you to know, well, there's a different kind of a nuanced meaning or a couple of them here. Well, that's not exactly nuanced, right? I mean, is it going to be look onward or look backward? I mean, that's kind of a polarity, right? So that is an issue, but I think, and, and I, the best uh, commentators, I think, understood this, that needs to be backward, mainly based on context. What he's calling them to do, think back like he has before. Think about your life. Think back. And he says, consider from this day, and I'm going to use backward. Think back. Because he calls him in the next sentence, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. In other words, the heap would have been the heap of grain from the threshing. They would have piled the grain up. And then the, the wine. So you have the basic staples of life back then. You know, you have bread and wine. That would have been the basics. But you didn't have what you thought you were going to have. Even though you began to build the temple, there is still chastening taking place up to this point. There were but 10, but there was only... You came to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. And then here's why. God says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. He calls them to consider what their lives were like up to that point, even though they began to rebuild the temple. It just wasn't what it should have been. There was still chastening continuing on even after their obedience. Their punishment was unproductive work. Think carefully about this. They were back in the land, and since stopping work on the temple for 16 years, their hard work was not productive, yet they still didn't turn to God in repentance. That's the blank there for for verse 17. And then verse 18 calls them to carefully think back from that day. This was the 24th day of the ninth month. And again, the timestamp is the laying of the temple foundation. He says in verse 18, consider from this day onward or backward, think back from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? expecting a no answer. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing at this point in time. They were being still being chastened because of their disobedience. They had not returned to the Lord yet. They had not, in repentance, turned to the Lord. What they early on got busy with external religious ritual, but they had neglected the internal spiritual reality. Some scholars believe the stress placed on this date means that this day was the last day of their 70-year chastisement and why they still suffered the consequences of this judgment for 18 years after entering the land. But regardless of their past failures and disobedience, they now have this glorious promise, and that's at the very end there of verse 19. But from this day on, I will bless you. And so that's why some scholars believe that the, the, they're out from under the 70-year chastening now, 
And now from now on, in their land, God is going to bless them. The blessing or cursing all through Scripture is has to do with them being in their land. If you want to see the, the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, read Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26, because he's going to go through, and it's a horrific list of chastening and, and, and um, all of the punishment that God will give them for disobedience to the Mosaic covenant. But then he repeatedly says, as Jeremiah does, but I will bless you. There's a promise of future blessing. And that's based on the Abrahamic covenant made four plus centuries before that was not conditioned on their obedience. It was conditioned on the faithfulness of God. And so that's probably could be what is in view in the end of verse 19. From this day on, God's making a real point of marking the day. One more time stamp in Scripture. From this day on, I will bless you. One commentator says this, the people were to notice something on the day this prophecy reached their ears, the 24th day of the ninth month, they were to notice that from the day they started to rebuild the temple, looking back, their hardships had continued. They still suffered shortages of staples, such as seed, grapes, olives, and luxuries, such as figs and pomegranates. However, the Lord revealed that he would now bless them, beginning that very day, the 24th of the ninth month. This oracle explained why agricultural blessing had not begun immediately after the people resumed reconstruction on the temple. Their present dedication and obedience did not wipe out their previous covenant unfaithfulness and its punishments. That punishment had to run its course, but now... As the day of this prophecy, God would begin to bless the people with better harvests. This message surely must have encouraged the Jews to persevere in their obedience. God will bless his people for their obedience, but sometimes he will not erase the punishment that previous sins have made necessary. Sometimes that punishment must run its course before blessings can begin. So, God's promise of future blessing is based upon his covenant faithfulness by which he bound himself to the terms of the Abrahamic covenant and all its provisions. Remember, Abraham did not participate in that. God put him in a trance, and he was on the sidelines just watching in a vision this covenant promise in Genesis 15, the the cutting of the covenant, and God himself passed through the parts of the animals. It was unconditional, unilateral, and it depends totally on the faithfulness and the power of God to bring it to pass. And that's why these people are still surviving after 70 years of captivity. They are going to be the people through whom God provides Messiah, the seed promise. And that's what we're going to look at next time. Do you have any thoughts or questions about uh, this oracle here? Brian, uh, he wanted to know who the commentator was. I'd have to get back with you on that. I don't have it here in my notes. It might have been. Sounds like him. Yeah, could it be Charles Feinberg? I'd have to check and see to verify that. It's not my comment. I just want to make sure that. That would be plagiarism. We can't do that. Well, you can do that and maybe rise to some higher heights. In Any Any other questions? Cornell? Yeah. Yeah, all Scripture is 
God breathed. I think Jim brought that out in our study of God wrote a book. All scripture, God breathed and profitable. So there's a profit even in the very short things that people, that, that God has written and communicated. So any other thoughts or questions that you might have? There is a, uh, there's, if you didn't get notes, there's more of the notes uh, around, but then there's also, uh, this, little time chart here. I was kind of hesitant about reproducing this, but we're going to talk about it a little bit next time. You've noticed how, how much, how many time, uh, how much time is part of what we've been studying, right? In fact, it's, it's a major part of a lot of things. If you, even some of the sort of the historic, uh, arm wrestling theologically back and forth, if you just kind of boil it down, what's it about? It's about timing. You know, are you pre, are you post, are you all? Those are timing issues. So it's, it's an important issue. And, uh, what kind of motivated me, motivated me to put this together was in, in, in my studies of, of Haggai, of, of course, and, and I'm looking at commentators that are, um, conservative for the most part and, and exegetical commentators that kind of get you back behind the, the, um, the, the, the usual English translations. But even they are mentioning other commentators. And uh, historically, um, there have been commentators who have looked at the 70 years that we see in Jeremiah and so on, and they basically kind of can't put it all together, and they can't figure it out. So what do they immediately do? They pronounce it as, well, that, that number can't be taken literally. You can't, that's not 70 years. That's, uh, you have to spiritualize that, okay? And um, that's something that um, I, I personally Disagree with on a, on a, on an exegetical basis from scripture, but it's a, it's kind of a, it's kind of a way that people reconcile in their own minds, apparently, how they can't figure this out. And the second way is if it, if it conflicts with their theological, uh, system, well, they have to pronounce, instead of changing their theological system to, uh, come closer to identifying the word of God with the word of God, they say, well, that word can't be taken Literally, you must have to spiritualize it. And there are scholars who want to say this can't be taken literally. Well, I came across an article there, and it's that's under uh, at the very back on page three. Um, Dr. Talbert. It's a real. You can look that article up. It's it's a short article. And basically, so was it seventy years or not? And as I read through that article, what he did, he basically showed from the text of scripture, there are different aspects to this seventy years. And uh, so what I thought I would try to do is try to chart this. Okay, now this is a draft, okay? And it says possible, all right? So don't, you know, don't uh, hold me to, this is not for public consumption. It's just for you guys, okay? We're going to talk about this a little bit next time, but I encourage you just kind of go through this and see what you think. So if, and I believe he's correct in this understanding, there are different aspects to the 70 years. There is a 70-year land issue, right? And what did we see back from Second Chronicles 36 and we talked about from Leviticus? They failed to let the land lie fallow or desolate to let the land have its rest. And they did that for 490 years. And so when they went out of the land, that 70 years is just not an arbitrary number. God is basically saying, you're not letting the land have its Sabbaths. So I will. And out they went. So the, there's a 70 years that's applied to the land. But then there's also the 70-year captivity of the people. This is the one pe- most people commonly think of, the 70-year captivity in Babylon. It probably started in somewhere around 606. The decree of Cyrus was 538. And the bottom line is, if you just kind of 
look at these as individual aspects, you can easily see how 70 years fits this, and it does. And then Babylon, this one's a fascinating one to me. Babylonian, uh, Neo-Babylonian Empire came into existence 609. You can just, you look that up on any, any, um, source you have, they'll, they'll say, if you look up Assyrian Empire, it came to an end in 609. Why? Because the Neo-Babylonians conquered them in 609. So whether it's the end of the, ne- the Assyrian Empire or the start of the Babylonian Empire at 609, that's a pretty firm number. And then, when did it come to an end? Daniel 5, that night, in one night, boom, it came to an end. Daniel witnessed that. Handwriting on the wall, right? And uh, in fact, we have time real quick. Let's Let's look at Daniel... Well, we won't take time this time. We'll do it next time. But Daniel, when he's reading the handwriting on the wall, he says, your, the, your days have been numbered. Okay. And when you see this timeline, you realize he's, he's really means this. Your days have been numbered and tonight's the end of it. And it's 539. That is a well agreed upon date. And it's that what's amazing about it is, is that this kingdom was surrounded by massive walls and they were impregnable. They had the river running right through the middle of it. They were growing crops in there. They were storing grain. They were impregnable. And even the siege of Jerusalem took 10 years. You go back to um, to uh, Jeremiah 52 and those passages. They, they put the siege around. It would take a long time. But in one night, Babylon, that amazing kingdom, fell. Boom. They were pretty smug, pretty uh, secure inside of there because they had all the provisions. They had this massive wall that two chariots could pass by on the top. They could patrol their perimeter from the top of the wall. And yet the Yemedo-Persian Empire took them down in one night. And that very night, it says Belshazzar was killed. And Daniel witnessed that. And so Daniel, at that point in time, would have said, this is this is the end. And he could have calculated back. And he also could understand, and he received in a letter form, Jeremiah's prophet of the 70 years. So we'll talk about this a little bit next time. But I think you can, you can know that when God says 70 years, it's 70 years. Okay. Now, your first impulse should not be, well, you can't take that literally. It's an indefinite period of time. Your first impulse should be, I can't figure it out because I'm fallible. But I'm going to take God for what he says in his word. And... Um, Again, this is just a possible time chart. And by the way, if you turn to page two, and I'm giving you this because I know a bunch of you guys are a whole lot better on a computer or a calculator than I am. So check this one out. Check out page two. This guy actually figured out from this date in Haggai, he figured it out and calculated it all out down to the day. And so this timeline is 70-year captivity based on the captivity of Ezekiel in 590. To Haggai's date in 520, okay, and uh, that may be that may be the, an actual timeline as well. So, look at this. We'll talk a little bit about it next time. But uh, really, the bottom line is we can trust the Word of God for what it says, and uh, we don't need to spiritualize the text of Scripture. It is not spiritual in the positive biblical sense to do that to the Word of God. Okay, do you have any thoughts or questions? About what we saw? No? Do I need to raise some more controversial uh, issues here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I think he's going to do that based on their obedience. Now, we know 
because we have the history of Jerusalem and Israel after that, this temple was was um, rebuilt by Herod the Great in about 10 BC, and that temple was destroyed in 70. So clearly, they went back to their old ways. There's a principle in Scripture concerning prophecy that oftentimes, well, you'll, what you'll see is a, a, a far fulfillment, but then there will be a near fulfillment. So when Isaiah told King Ahaz, the Lord himself will give to you a sign, and that sign was the birth of this one called Emmanuel. Well, we know who that is, right? But that was the birth of Christ centuries into the future. How can that be assigned to, to Ahaz? Well, so you have this principle of a prophecy given, but you have a near fulfillment, which is serves as the guarantee. Paul develops this in Ephesians 1 with the Spirit. And he uses the word that is actually commonly translated, earnest or down payment. The spirit that is that indwells a believer here and now is just a down payment. There will be a far fulfillment in the future that it will be beyond your wildest imaginations of the spirit's activity. So um, if that answers the question, I think you find, if you say, well, how is how can this be a fulfillment? Well, there's a near fulfillment that guarantees the future fulfillment in these prophecies. It has been called that, yeah. Yep, there's a bunch of them. And I tend to not call it dual. I just say near versus far. Because Paul uses the word arabon in Ephesians 1. That's a Greek term for it means earnest. In other words, just apply it to purchasing anything. You purchase a house. You have an earnest payment. But that, what does that do? That guarantees the future full full payment that will come. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, the, um, he, he brought up... Um, Robert Culver was his name, I believe. I'm not sure of the name, but in the 1940s, he wrote a book, and that's where that quote comes from. And it's absolutely true to this day. If, if, the, if the, the basic sense, the literal sense, the normal sense, makes plain sense, seek no other sense of the Scripture. Yeah, so we're talking about hermeneutics here, or how do you interpret Scripture? This, this gets back down and accounts for a lot of the differences you see. You know, there's... How does, how does one group of people read the same scripture and come up to this conclusion? And another group reads it, comes to this conclusion. And then they, you know, they arm wrestle about what does it mean? Well, back, 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 go clear, back, back, back. How do you interpret? And, and that's going to tell you how they got there. Your theological conclusions will never be more biblical than your hermeneutics ever. Another way to say that is your hermeneutics will determine your theology always. Let me hear your theology. I can tell you what your hermeneutics are. And so, yeah, um, hermeneutics are a critical issue to, to understand. I think Cornell's going to be talking about that, too. He's going to solve all the problems next time. <laughs> no, but it is, it is a big issue. And, and Daniel, and he's brought this out in Daniel, Daniel has just been ravaged by the, by the critics through the years. Why? Because it's predictive prophecy. I mean, it is so clearly predictive prophecy, and predictive prophecy in Scripture is probably the most powerful argument for this being the Word of God. God uses this in Isaiah. Basically, he challenges the idols. Can you, can you prophesy the future, you idol, and can you bring it to pass? God can do both, and he does. And so the, the, the critics don't, don't like that, because if it's true what it says about 
the predictions that it makes, what's it say about them and their future? They got a problem. And so if you even go uh, Wikipedia, check out Wikipedia. Prophet Daniel, and what it's going to say is 2nd century B.C. prophet. 2nd century? There you go. Um, but, I mean, this is commonly thought, you know. Sec- how could Daniel be 2nd century? They have to date him there because they have to make him a historian. They can't make him what he is in Scripture, a prophet used by God to predict the future with precision and accuracy and going across vast periods of time and even well into the future and uh, has to be done away with if you're someone who does not believe the Bible is the Word of God because what it says about you, right? John said it, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So they got to extinguish the light any way they can. Any other thoughts that you might have? Well, we've opened up uh, multiple cans of worms here today, and that's good. That's good. These are issues we need to be talking about because the Bible does have answers for them. Well, let's pray. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.